You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. With two million people trapped in the south of Gaza, we'll have the latest on the ongoing humanitarian crisis. And we'll hear about a leaked proposal to clear the remaining residents out of Gaza completely. We'll look at growing political crises in Ukraine as the population's faith in the country's government starts to fade. And we'll also hear how Russia has shaken up the balance of power in the Arctic Circle. Russia occupies a very significant fraction of the Arctic all by itself. And to accomplish our own goals in the Arctic, particularly relating to climate change, we need data out of Russia, and frankly, we need Russian cooperation. Today's newspaper review will come out of Zurich, and Andrew Miller will help us make sense of the last seven days of news. We learned this from the inquiry into the UK government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, from which we have so far learned that it was not the fault of the Prime Actual Minister, but the fault of the virus. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel says its military forces have encircled Gaza City and have begun to attack Hamas headquarters and infrastructure. Japan says it's to scale back an historic five-year increase in its military procurement because of a collapse in the yen. And Russia's former president, Dmitry Medvedev, has warned Poland that it has become a dangerous enemy of Moscow. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, more foreign nationals have been able to leave Gaza through the Rafah crossing into Egypt. Up to 7,500 foreigners and severely injured Palestinians are expected to leave during the next two weeks in a deal brokered by Qatar. Now, this tiny glimpse of light, however, is shadowed by the fact that two million people are left behind in Gaza, living under three weeks of Israeli bombardments. Gazan hospitals are now short of basic supplies. And now a leaked plan has emerged that could see Israel trying to move the Gazan population population out completely. Well, I'm joined now by the journalist and regular Monocle voice, Robin Lustig. A very good morning to you, Robin. Morning, Emma. So just explain to us a little bit about what this plan is, that that it's been leaked uh, through the Israeli media, that those remaining in Gaza could be moved out totally. Yeah, I I think we have to uh, be careful about this word plan. Uh, According to Israeli media reports, what it is, is a document which comes out of a sort of government research department, which seems to have been tasked with coming up with possible options for what might follow the current conflict in Gaza. And uh, the preferred option, it seems, uh, unbelievably in my view, is to transfer the entire population of Gaza, which, as you say, is more than two million people, across the border into Egypt and house them at first temporarily, but possibly uh, later on permanently, in the Sinai Desert. Um, I have to say, Emma, that in my view, it's a complete nonsense and a complete non-starter. For one thing, the Palestinians themselves won't want to go because they'll be absolutely sure that they won't be allowed back. Uh, Secondly, the Egyptians won't want them there for all kinds of reasons, not least because they don't want responsibility for another two million people. Um, And nobody else in the region will want it either. So in my view, as I say, it's a pretty daft idea. But the fact that it's being even discussed in uh, Israeli government circles is actually quite concerning. Sari Bashi uh, now joins us. She's Programme Director at Human Rights Watch based in the West Bank. A very good morning to you, Sari. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Just let's pick up a little bit on what Robin was mentioning there. The fact that the idea of this displacement of effectively the entire civilian population of, of Gaza is quite an astonishing one, isn't it? 
Yes, and and I've got to say that um, the 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 risk of forcible displacement is growing. Um, and and just for context, um, Human Rights Watch and other uh, human rights organizations have determined that the Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. So one of the major elements of those crimes includes forced displacement, um, removing Palestinians from areas that the Israeli government um, wishes to use for the purposes of Israeli Jews. Those crimes are when you systematically um, maintain the domination of one racial group, Israeli Jews, over Palestinians. People in Gaza, 70% of the people in Gaza are refugees or their descendants. So people who 75 years ago fled what is now Israel, uh, fleeing the, the, the approaching Israeli army and were not allowed to return. Now, when the Israeli government issues um, orders to people telling them to leave their homes, many of those residents have um, not unwell-based concerns that they will not be allowed back. Sorry, just just dealing with that just briefly, the, the Israelis are currently saying that they have encircled Gaza City and that this is going to be a street-to-street building to building battle to get rid of Hamas. And the only option that they have in order to to do this effectively is, is to move the civilian population out. And they have no choice, they say, but to remove Hamas in order to remove the threat to Israel. So what the Israeli military did was not move the civilian population, nor did they provide safe places for the civilian population. They issued a warning uh, earlier this month telling um, more than a million people to leave northern Gaza. Ordinarily, under international humanitarian law, warring parties are encouraged to issue warnings when those warnings allow civilians to keep themselves safe. But when you issue a warning to leave, but there's no safe place to go and no safe way to get there, the warning is not effective. And under all circumstances, civilians who stay behind, either because they cannot or will not leave, retain their civilian protections. So if the Israeli army does indeed go house to house, it is obligated to continue to take maximum precautions to protect the lives of the many, many hundreds of thousands of people who have not left northern Gaza. Sorry, just one more on that one. Is Anthony Blinken is is heading to the to the Middle East? The US Secretary of State at the moment. He says he's going to discuss concrete steps to minimise harm to civilians in Gaza. What difference do you think that will make? Because the Israelis are reliant to, to a certain degree on on the US's help here. Well, I know what concrete step I would like him to take. Um, first of all, the United States is one of 83 countries that has signed on to a political declaration restricting the use of explosive weapons in densely populated areas because of the high risk of civilian casualties. In, in human terms, if you launch explosive weapons on a massive scale in densely packed residential areas, you are predicted to kill many civilians. And that is exactly what is happening in Gaza. The United States has an opportunity to insist that the Israeli military, which it is arming, abide by that, that emerging norm of re refraining from dropping bombs on densely packed city blocks because of the predictability of human suffering. Beyond that, it can require the Israeli military to allow life-saving fuel into Gaza so that hospitals, water systems, and ambulances can continue to function. Um, Robin, let's come back to you and this idea of this what's been described as a hypothetical concept paper of moving the two million or so Gazans stuck in the southern part of the Strip, uh, many of them trying to get out or indeed unable to get out while the humanitarian crisis unfolds and unfolds. Um, the Financial Times has been reporting that um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, has been lobbying EU governments to pressure Egypt into accepting refugees from Gaza. I mean, where does Israel stand on this? Are they obliged to, to open their borders? Uh, to what degree is, is this going to dangerously bring in not just other areas of the Middle East, but also Europe as well? Well, it, it is very dangerous because um, it does, uh, every time this kind of idea of the forcible movement of people across borders is raised, it uh, reinforces the suspicion among many Palestinians, which goes right back 
uh, to when Israel was was founded in 1948, that what Israel actually wants is to get rid of all of the Palestinians for good. And so this kind of idea, every time it surfaces, feeds into those suspicions and will make it even more difficult to bring this dreadful conflict to an end. One other point about Israel-Egypt relations, Egypt was the first Arab country to sign a peace agreement with Israel uh, back in 1979. And uh, it certainly has paid a political price for that. Indeed, President Sadat lost his life as a result of that. So it, it's very unlikely indeed that Egypt will want to be seen in any way uh, to be aiding Israel in what will be seen throughout the Arab world as the forced displacement of millions of Palestinian Arabs from their homes and from their land. Sorry, same question to you. What obligation does Egypt have to open its borders in this situation? So Egypt and Israel, as countries neighboring Gaza, have an obligation to open their borders to people who are fleeing for their lives. That's the principle of non-refoulement. Turning people back is turning people back who have who in circumstances in which returning risks their lives. I share, I very much share the concerns about forced displacement. However, the decision whether or not to flee is an individual decision. If families decide that in order to keep themselves and their children safe, they would like to flee either to Egypt or to uh, Israel, then Egypt and Israel must let them in. That is not happening. And Israel, as the occupying power, has an obligation to ensure that people are allowed back when it is safe to return. Sorry, the the UN's reported that um, since Hamas uh, attacked Israel on the 7th of October, nearly 50 UN buildings have been impacted by Israel Israel's retaliation, um, some being directly hit. You are campaigning hard in the West Bank to maintain human rights to to the best degree that you possibly can. How much harder is it getting to do this? I mean, look, my concern is that um, October 7th marked an additional deterioration in a very basic principle, which is that you protect civilians. The Hamas-led attacks uh, on on October 7th, massacring Israeli civilians, burning families in their homes, taking children hostage, those were horrific war crimes because they targeted civilians. And the Israeli attack on Gaza, including um, the, the massive use of explosive weapons in populated areas, including deliberately impeding life-saving humanitarian relief, are also uh, just a a, a total distortion of what what warring parties have to do to protect civilians. And I'm also concerned that influential backers like the United States and other Western uh, backers of Israel are not being consistent in upholding the obligations to protect civilians. It doesn't matter if they're Palestinian. It doesn't matter if they are Israeli. Civilians must be protected. And if, if we can make a little bit of progress on that, then maybe we can also protect people in the West Bank, but it has to be consistent. Indeed. I mean, just I would like your invite your comment on this one. We've just um, had an interview with uh, Dr. Omar Abdel Manan, who's a pediatric neurologist based in London. He's also co-founder of Gaza Medic Voices. He's uh, accusing uh, basically the Israelis of using white phosphorus in Gaza. The Israelis have not commented on this. We don't have any um, denial from the Israelis uh, to, to, to sort of like push against this clip. But let's have a listen to what he says. We've seen pretty horrific and graphic images that get sent to us of, and I'm sorry to describe it so vividly, but dismembered limbs, amputations, children with horrendous burns to their face, to their whole body, 90% coverage of their body of third degree burns, some of which is going down to the bone, some of which the doctors themselves and Amnesty International have come out and said could be consistent with white phosphorus munitions. I know we don't have any physical evidence of this, but this is what I'm just relaying and I'm being told. That's Dr. Omar Abdel Manan, and he was saying, sorry, that you know, Amnesty International has said that the the evidence is suggesting that it could be white phosphorus, but the Israelis have have not said it said anything in return. We have to be clear about that. But are you hearing similar reports? 
So first of all, I, I want to just um, acknowledge and admire the medical professionals in Gaza who are saving lives under impossible conditions. In terms of white phosphorus, Human Rights Watch has documented the use of white phosphorus both in Gaza and Lebanon earlier this month in populated areas. So white phosphorus is an incendiary material that um, its use in civilian areas and populated areas is unlawful because it unnecessarily puts civilian at risk. It's indiscriminate. When it disintegrates into the air, it can land on human beings and it burns flesh in ways that are horrible. Um, Amnesty International has also documented not just the use of white phosphorus in Lebanon, but also injuries resulting from that. The Israeli military uh, has uh, committed to not using white phosphorus, except for uh, a, a number of limited circumstances that it won't disclose what they are. So I don't know what those circumstances are, but they are using it. They have used it in Gaza. It is unlawful and it's putting civilians at risk. Um, a spokesman for the IDF, um, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner says he's not aware of any instances of the use of white phosphorus in weapons being used uh, on the Gaza, Gaza Strip. But let's move on to a story not necessary of hope, but of of something to to feel as if Gaza is more connected to the outside world. Uh, Robin, the BBC World Service is launching an emergency Gaza service, isn't it? it, it it'll be just one programme per day based out of London, but will then move to uh, to Egypt. That's right. Uh, it's something that the BBC has done in the past. Um, declaration of interest, Emma, as you know, I worked for the BBC for more than 20 years including a, a lot of work that I did for the World Service, and I have the utmost admiration for the work that it does. I mean, this, I think, will be very much welcomed by people in Gaza. And there is some question in my mind as to how easy it will be for them to access the material, because I'm not sure how many people in Gaza still actually have old-fashioned radio sets. Um, we know from what's happened in the last couple of weeks that the Israelis can cut off all communications for people in Gaza, both internet and mobile phone. So if they're relying on that as a way of accessing uh, information from the BBC, it could be problematic. Uh, what the BBC says it's going to do is to broadcast these programs on medium wave. So I hope that there are enough people in the Gaza Strip who can dig out their old railway sets, which still have functioning batteries in them, tune them to the appropriate wavelength on medium wave and get some much needed information, just basic information as to where emergency foodstuffs might be available, where drinking water might be available and uh, what arrangements are being made to enable people who want to get out to, to do so. And Robin, it does raise the wider point, doesn't it, about the importance? And, you know, you've worked in radio for a long time, as have I. So here we are sort of shining a spotlight on ourselves just a touch. But the BBC in particular, its ability to reach places that other means and methods just cannot touch in times of crisis. It's, it's a hugely important thing, isn't it? It is absolutely life-saving in some in, in some circumstances, and I think this is one of those circumstances. As I say, anybody with an old-fashioned radio set uh, will be able to access this information. Uh, it is a relatively simple technology, uh, as the BBC has shown time and time again. It can be uh, put into effect relatively simply and relatively quickly. People trust, by and large, what they hear on the BBC. So if the BBC does put out basic humanitarian information, uh, then I I think that will be widely welcomed and I hope uh, it will make a huge difference, at least to a limited number of people. Robin Lustig and Sarah Bashi, thank you both so much for joining us on The Globalist. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Nine eighteen in Kiev, seven eighteen here in London. Now, how does a government maintain its trust in the teeth of war? A survey suggests that twenty months since Russia invaded Ukraine, the majority of Ukrainians have faith in their president Volodymyr Zelensky, but the trust in the country's wider government is waning. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined in the studio by Sasha Dovzhuk, who's a special projects curator at the Ukrainian Institute here in London and editor of the London Ukrainian Review. A very good morning to you, Sasha. Thank you good for joining morning. us. Good morning. Good so morning. Just 
just explain this survey. It's it's come from Kyiv and it, and it involves 2,000 people. So one can assume that that's the sort of the, the baseline when it starts to actually reflect a, a more genuine wider issue here. What's it saying? Uh, I think what we need to focus on is that it's a rather normal state for the Ukrainian people not to uh, have huge trust in their government. Um, as a rule, we do not have much reverence towards uh, our leadership. You might remember that uh, just before Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, we had a democratic revolution which ousted our corrupt um, president and our corrupt government out of the country. And this was perceived by Russia as an existential threat. Um, and an invasion and annexation of Crimea followed. Um, you. Ukraine is a very democratic uh, country, which uh, is usually critical of its leadership. So this poll is uh, rather showing us that we are returning to the normal state of things for, for our people and for our nation. Because things had improved in terms of the amount of trust that people gave to their government. And this, this, this survey is suggesting that Ukraine's parliament, the level of trust has dropped from 58% to 21% and for the government as a whole has decreased from 74% to 39%. Is this just a rebalancing, as you say, of, of, of pre-war sentiment? Um, of course, uh, the full-scale invasion has consolidated the nation, um, as one would expect. Uh, but I think it's uh, also interesting to see who maintain, maintains our trust. Uh, we keep trust in the Ukrainian armed forces and we keep trust in volunteers, so the civic society. What's gone wrong, though, for the government and for parliament for trust to, d to diminish? Um, I think that nothing actually did go wrong. Uh, it is uh, rather Ukraine rolling back, back to its normal state of things, of being critical of its government, of um, maintaining accountability and uh, of uh, maintaining a healthy level of dialogue between government and civil society. Well, you say that, but it is, what, two months since the defence minister was dismissed. Um, there, there are moments when there, there is still internal trouble inside the government. And is this perhaps a, an issue of, of people now saying, well, actually, we are now 18, what, 20 months into into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We are looking at something which is which isn't going anywhere at the moment, which, you know, the longer that, that the positions are held, the more that Russia has time to reboost its uh, its own arsenal. Are people weary of the fact that the war has not yet been won? Uh, well, of course, there is a certain level of weariness inside Ukrainian society. As you say, it's uh, been almost 20 months into the full-scale invasion and 10 years into the lone war against Russia. Uh, but uh, as we see from this poll, it is not the lonely fight of Ukrainian leadership. It is rather the fight of the Ukrainian people. Um, as we can see, we still uh, trust in our army and in its ability to fight off the invader. And here we also need to understand that our army is really uh, extraordinary in terms of representation of the Ukrainian people. So it's an army of civilians, basically. It grew seven times since the full-scale invasion. It means that uh, its backbone is obviously the professional Ukrainian armed forces, but it is also strengthened by the participation of people from all walks of life. And it means that uh, the Ukrainian armed forces are really representative of the Ukrainian society in general. And the same thing can be said about the volunteers. Ukrainians, because of the centuries of statelessness, obviously we've been divided between various empires, as you probably know very well, um, have maintained this ability to build horizontal links, to maintain high levels of self-organization, um, of networking. And this is what keeps the country going. So while there might be um, a perception in the West uh, that uh, it is um, some kind of 
um, one-man show of President Zelensky, as we are often led to believe. Um, in reality, in Ukraine, it is a countrywide struggle against the invader, and the resilience of the Ukrainian people is as strong as it was 20 months ago. Tell us a little bit more about the way that Volodymyr Zelensky is, is seen now. I mean, if we have a recalibration of trust levels when it comes to the way that the government is run and the way that the parliament is run, there is no doubt that Volodymyr Zelensky's star shines brightly, very much so in the international stage. His ability to make that emotional connection and to get the the West's help on board is is phenomenal and long lasting. His popularity has dipped a touch, but but still it is a mere seventy six percent. Do people still feel as if Zelensky is the man? Um what comes to mind is a phrase that um, Olesya Khromychuk, the uh, Ukrainian historian, director of the Ukrainian Institute London, has used to describe his role um, as an amplifier-in-chief. So he's really good at sensing the mood of the country and then um, speaking on behalf of his people to global audiences. And I think this role um, has been maintained by him through the 20 months of this full-scale invasion and he still speaks very much on our behalf to our friends and allies. People are now suggesting that because of this shift in opinion that it's not just Volodymyr Zelensky who who you know who, who there doesn't seem to be anybody to replace him nor nor should they for the time being because of the level of popularity he's enjoying. But when you look at the way that the government and the parliament's popularity is, is dropping that an election should be called. I mean, how do you go about doing that? This isn't the first time that this has been suggested, but it seems an enormous ask. It doesn't seem feasible at the moment to conduct um, an election in a country that is so deep into the war effort. Uh, the problem of... Um, disenfranchising people who are serving at the front lines is very real. Of course, as I have said, uh, they are the one who maintain the highest level of trust in our society and uh, organizing an election somewhere where um, there is an artillery fire 24-7 is not quite possible. So currently uh, going for an election in Ukraine uh, would be not even a big ask, but an unfair ask, I would say. Sasha Dovzik, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Still to come on today's programme, Andrew Muller shares his take on what the last seven days have taught us. We learned this from the inquiry into the UK government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, from which we have so far learned that it was not the fault of the prime actual minister, but the fault of the virus. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue now with today's papers. Noel Alejandra Salmi is a travel, culture and sustainability writer. I'm delighted to say she joins us from uh, Dufourstrasse 90 our studio in Zurich. Uh, very good morning to you, Noel. How's Zurich looking this morning? Uh, Zurich is a little rainy, but expected to clear up a bit today. Wonderful. So are we looking for a good weekend for walks by the lake? Absolutely. With, uh, with a view of uh, snow on the Alps. Already. Can't yes. Wait. Okay. Uh, that uh, Zurich update done with. Thank you very much indeed for that. What have you spotted in the papers? Uh, yes. Well, so uh, Germany's interior minister, uh, Nancy Faser, announced yesterday a ban on Samidun, a Palestinian group uh, whose German branch, she said, is part of an international network that spreads anti-Israel and anti-Jewish propaganda under the guise of solidarity for Palestinian prisoners. She also announced further regulations to stamp out any activities linked to Hamas, which was already banned in Germany. But Germany's domestic intelligence agency estimates there are about 450 active Hamas supporters in Germany. Um, and these new measures are intended to make it easier for one to expel Hamas supporters from the country. Um, just tell us a little bit about the, the, the absolutely unique place that Germany occupies in in all this and the fact that it absolutely has to stamp out on a stamp out anti-semitism. 
Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously, given Germany's history, uh, you know, any any sort of uh, anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic activities are are really just not prohibited. Uh, you know, constitutionally, there are um, some you know bans against. Uh, Holocaust denial and all of that, so it follows along uh, with that. It's not it's not legal in the country, and uh, and in fact, interestingly, uh, there's a lot of support for this ban uh, that came out uh, from Berlin senators. The police is happy for uh, these initial me- these additional measures because they say it makes them easier to know exactly what to do and how to proceed. And uh, the Central Council of Jews uh, in Berlin also praised the new regulations. Um, so this uh, group, Samidon, had claimed to be, as I said, uh, a sort of solidarity group. But in fact, after the horrific October 7th attack by Hamas, they were handing out pastries on a Berlin street, something that uh, the minister, Faser said is absolutely sickening. Let's move to a story from the Washington Post, uh, which talks about space junk. Um, it's graphic suggesting that um, it looks really big from where we're standing, but space is getting very crowded. Tell us what's happening. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so there's a piece uh, by the editorial board of the Washington Post uh, because the Senate is considering uh, legislation that will force companies to have a plan to get rid of their junk after it gets up there, but still only 25 years later. So it's all a bit of a mess. Um, it's really fascinating uh, if you have an opportunity to look at it online because it's got lots of, it just graphically shows you how crowded space is outside Earth. Uh, there are 9,000 satellites out there, 8,000 of which uh, move through low Earth orbit, and you can Um, adjust their trajectory, but there are 25,000 pieces of obsolete satellites and rocket parts and debris which threaten the active satellites. Um, And uh, these objects move at 17,000 miles per hour. Um, The crazy thing is that less less than 10% of this junk is large enough to be tracked, so there are actually probably half a million tiny particles that are flying through space that if they hit a satellite can actually cause it serious damage, can maybe destroy that satellite and create more junk. There's actually a name for this. Um, it's called the Kessler syndrome, named after Donald Kessler, an astrophysicist from NASA, who said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to start having exponential growth of junk. Tell us a little bit more about what the Washington Post is, is suggesting for this one, because the one thing that has been highlighted is that there are no standards here, that there are That's, there are very few rules governing what happens when you throw your space rubbish into space. Exactly. Well, it's they, they, they liken the standards to, they said, uh, these governments and companies that send things into space are held to lower standards than a kindergartner, since there is no penalty for making a mess and not cleaning it up. Uh, so they suggest um, uh, that anything should have a plant that goes up should have a plan to remove it, uh, for example, to a much higher graveyard area. Um, low Earth orbit is 100 miles to 1,250 miles uh, up from uh, Earth. And uh, beyond that, there's a little bit more space. Um, Currently, the UN says that you need to dispose of your satellite um, debris or leftover satellite uh, within 25 years. Um, the U.S. Um, Federal Trade uh, FCC says five years should be the limit. Uh, right now, there's there are old treaties in in effect from the 1960s and 1970s that says you are not allowed to touch another country's object in space even if it's dead and needs to be removed. That's the kind of treaty that needs to be updated because really this is uh, this is a growing problem. And as the Washington Post uh, says, it needs a multi-country response. Finally, um, the world was introduced to the Beatles' last song yesterday, an incredibly moving moment, actually, that made everybody stop and, and listen and suddenly realise what we, what, we, what we had and what we lost and what we've had momentarily again. The music side came out yesterday. Today, we see the video. That's right. Uh, at 2 p.m. GMT, uh, there will be a video released uh, directed by Peter Jackson, uh, best known uh, 
for his Lord of the Rings, but also uh, more recently his eight-hour get-back documentary about the Beatles using old footage. Um, in an interview with Peter Jackson, it's it's pretty cute. He was very expressed his nerves about doing this, uh, doing a music video for the first time, particularly of such an important song. But he said he um, listened to the song over and over and really got a feel for the message that he wanted to get out. And uh, he made use of brand new footage that wasn't even in his Get Back documentary. Some of it is um, silent footage that, uh, of the Beatles performing in leather suits. It's the earliest known film of the Beatles. Um, and in fact, had um, their earlier drummer, Pete Best. Um, he, you can't really see him. You can only see his arm. But uh, but he's there. And there's also footage um, that was provided by George Harrison's widow and John Lennon's son of home footage, home video. So it should be pretty interesting. Noel Alandra Salmi, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio from Die Vorstrasse 90 in Zurich. The time in Zurich is uh, 8.34. Here in London, it's 7.34. So it's time now on The Globalist to have a look at the headlines. Israel says its military forces have encircled Gaza City and have begun to attack Hamas headquarters and infrastructure. Four more Israeli soldiers have been confirmed killed in the fighting. Meanwhile, Gazans who currently work in Israel are to be sent back to the besieged strip. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says more than 9,000 people have been killed in the strip since the 7th of October. President Vladimir Putin has signed a law withdrawing Russia's ratification of the global treaty banning nuclear weapons tests. The move, though expected, is evidence of the deep chill between the US and Russia. Moscow will not resume nuclear testing unless Washington does, say Russian diplomats. And the Russian former president, Dmitry Medvedev, has warned Poland that it has become a dangerous enemy of Moscow. Mr Medvedev, who's now deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council, made the comments in an 8,000 word article on Russian-Polish relations. He said Poland could end up being losing its statehood if it continued on its current course. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 2.36am in Lima, 8.36am in Berlin. Now, three years ago, the airlines were suffering hard as a pandemic grounded the world. Hit particularly toughly were those in Latin America. Many, having received no support from their governments, came close to bankruptcy. Well, now the skies are seeing a remarkable resurgence and the Latin American air industry is reportedly enjoying a boom. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Andrew Thompson, who's a Latin American specialist and regular contributor to the news site Latin News. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So what does this boom look like? Well, it looks like getting back to good old times or basically 2019, which was when before COVID struck. And what's happened is that a lot of the numbers that airlines use to measure their activity are now finally back up to 2019 levels. So this is in terms of, for example, passenger numbers. A number of airlines say they're up to about 90% of where they were in, in 2019. It's also, if you look at the profit and loss, so some airlines are still making significant losses, but there's a little group um, that is now back into profit um, and enjoying uh, rising demand, basically. Who are those lucky members of that group and, and why are they doing so well? Well, the ones that are doing well are LATAM Airlines, which is possibly the largest uh, airline in, in Latin America. Uh, Aeromexico, the, the Mexican airline, which benefits with very intense uh, traffic to the US. Um, and Avianca, originally from Colombia, which is involved in a... I mean, they've all been involved in debt restructurings, uh, and consolidation. And I think so one big theme is that the larger airliners, the larger airlines are more able to survive, uh, to have come through this you know, incredibly difficult period, um, and now are in a position to reap the benefits. So many um, of the um, airlines that you talked about were 
halfway to bankruptcy. And you mentioned passenger numbers jumping up again. What is making these passengers travel again and, and filling the coffers of these airlines? I think there are various factors in play. One is, um, I was unaware of this term, but it's an interesting one, revenge tourism. Uh, and apparently revenge tourism is after you've stayed at home throughout um, the COVID pandemic and had a rather boring existence, you build up a desire to go and burn up some miles and visit foreign places again. So tourism in, in Latin America is picking up. Um, the other thing, which I think is very important, is that there are some, if you like, structural differences in the Latin American aviation market, uh, which is basically that for a variety of reasons, competition from other transport modes is lower. I think one of the major things here is that most Latin American countries don't have significant passenger railway networks. So if you live, for example, if you live in Brazil, which is an absolutely gigantic country, um, and you need to get to another city, uh, you look at uh, bus timetables, and it takes you 9, 10, 11, 12 hours to get to where you want to get to within the country. Um, if you look at uh, airfares, um, they are giving you much better value for money. So you're flying for maybe 30 minutes, one hour, um, and you're, pairing, you're paying for a higher rate. Um, aviation has become, um, air tickets have become um, higher, uh, but it is still the case that flying there is um, much, a much better option than trying to get there by, by road or by rail where rail is in existence. You mentioned a moment ago that not everybody is making large amounts of money just yet. I mean, we're seeing passenger numbers topping 2019 levels regularly in the region. But um, the Director General of IATA, Willie Walsh, said that we expect airlines in the region to be loss-making in 2023, fuel prices, taxes and visa charges being some of the main reasons. I mean, how much is this a, a, a boom but an, uns, an unsure one? I think that's probably a good way of looking at it, simply because, um, you know, if we just look at energy prices, aviation fuel, um, with the uh, tension and the fighting in, in the Middle East and, and Ukraine, um, oil prices are likely to keep on upwards, and that will hit um, ticket prices, which will also have to go up. Um, and with a number of Latin, Latin American economies expecting uh, frankly, sort of slow and uninspiring growth, um, that will be a difficulty for the market. Um, it's also true that the, um, the industry is trying to fine tune and um, adjust uh, the way it works. And you seem to have this you know, continuing difference between budget airlines and the more traditional um, sort of better service type airlines, which gives you a lot, give you a lot more uh, fringe deals. There is some, interestingly, there is some experimentation and innovation going on. Um, Avianca is now looking at um, basically uh, doing away with first and second class and just basically having every, everyone in economy class with slightly different variations. Uh, they're looking at a plane configuration where the seats at the back are not reclinable. You just sit sit in them as they are, and you pay a bit more for reclinable seats further up. They found that um, by uh, jiggling around the distribution of seats on each plane, um, they can actually increase the number of seats uh, from current levels, uh, therefore having an impact on their on their um, efficiency numbers. Um, just tell us a little bit about the political landscape in the region that we've seen in Argentina, for example. Um, we're going to a runoff between the country's economic minister Sergio Massa and the and the right wing populist candidate Javier Milei, who he wants to privatise um, the the flag carrier. Um, how much do political changes, which are often profound in, in Latin America, how do they affect the prospects of, of the aviation world? That's um, a good question and one that's quite difficult to answer coherently. Um, I think one way of looking at it is to say, um, essentially, the growth of the middle class 
is really, really good for the aviation industry. So you want a bigger middle class with more disposable income, and they will spend a proportion of that on going on holiday or traveling. So then the next question comes, where, where we get into more complicated grounds, is which politicians and which policies help expand the middle class? And I don't think there are necessarily uh, clear answers to that. Um, what was clear was that um, in the, say, the first 15 years of this century, um, 2000 to 2015, there was a commodities boom, a super cycle, which was really, really good for Latin American countries and led to a prolonged period of middle class growth. Things are much more difficult now. Uh, and you have to ask the question, uh, if we look at Argentina, um, Cesar Millet, far right candidate, is proposing really radical things cutting government spending by as much as 15%, uh, a real kind of crash program. Uh, will that succeed? Or will the more traditional approach of Sergio Massa, which is much more concerned of, uh, you know, putting money in voters pockets, <laughs> to put it to put it crudely, uh, which of those two policies will um, will create a larger middle class? It's not immediately clear. Latin America specialist Andrew Thompson, thank you so much for joining me on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. We turn now on the globalist to the Arctic, a region long regarded as a paragon of peace and stability. But as we've been discussing all this week on Monocle Radio, Russia's war in Ukraine has shaken security dynamics in the region. Last month at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Ambassador David Bolton, Executive Director at the Arctic Executive Steering Committee at the White House. And Andrew began by asking him about American gaps in knowledge when it comes to the region. It's not just our own understanding. We don't know very much about the effects of climate change in the Arctic still, despite how much it's studied. We don't know very much about the marine environment in the Central Arctic Ocean in particular. It's one of the least understood parts of the planet. We don't understand the cumulative effects of all the changes coming to the terrestrial Arctic as well. There are changes in predator-prey relationships. There are any number of things going on that we need to understand better. I did want to ask inevitably about the strategic balance around the Arctic Circle. Because of events further south over the last 18 months, every country apart from Russia, which directly abuts the Arctic, is now either a member of NATO or presumably about to be. As the United States sees it, does that change anything terribly much? Because the, the, the Arctic had been for better or worse, right or wrong, seen as an arena in which people or the nations were broadly cooperative, even Russia. But now nobody's really talking to Russia anymore. Since the end of the Cold War, the Russians and the rest of the Arctic countries have found ways to cooperate in the Arctic. In fact, the region had been seen as a model of international cooperation. There were five binding agreements relating to the Arctic negotiated just in about a decade's time. And that was despite considerable friction with Russia, beginning with problems in Syria and the first invasion of Ukraine, interference in U.S. elections, all sorts of things. We nevertheless were able to work through all that until last year. The full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia has changed the equation radically. And you're right, for the most part, cooperation with Russia has ceased. There are some limited exceptions, and the Arctic Council now is starting to function at least at a low level but it's nothing like the level it was prior to 2022. 
Because there was always that sense, a bit like there is with Antarctica, that this was a special case. Do you think that is irrecoverably gone? Will the other countries have to figure out how to address the stuff that needs addressing without involving Russia? We're trying to figure out how to address the stuff that needs addressing without involving Russia right now, and it is not easy. Russia occupies a very significant fraction of the Arctic all by itself. And to accomplish our own goals in the Arctic, particularly relating to climate change, we need data out of Russia, and frankly, we need Russian cooperation, which will be hard to achieve over the short time. That said, Russia is committing unspeakable atrocities in uh, Ukraine. They have taken themselves out of the equation in a serious way, and I don't know when that will change. Is there then a concern that until or unless that does change that it's inevitable that the Arctic becomes an explicitly adversarial arena? No, I didn't mean to imply that. The Arctic is still a relatively stable, peaceful place. If you think about the places in the world where there's actual armed conflict going on as we speak, like in Ukraine, like in the Middle East, that's not happening in the Arctic, nor is it likely to happen. Large-scale terrorism, not likely to happen in the Arctic. Mass migrations of people, not in the Arctic. Human trafficking, drug trafficking, not so much in the Arctic. So it's still a fairly stable, peaceful place. It's not as cooperative as it used to be, but I'm not worried that we're about to descend into armed conflict in the Arctic anytime soon. Certain risks have gone up, though. The risks of unintended conflict in the Arctic have increased due to the current situation, and so people do worry about that. Even if, therefore, the Arctic doesn't necessarily become, you know, prone to conflict, does it need to become, well, possibly as a means of avoiding that conflict, does it need to become more militarized than it is? More militarized? The Arctic has always been militarized. It's not like Antarctica that way, right? Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia allowed its military capabilities in the Arctic to erode considerably. If you listen to the Russians, what they are doing now is simply rebuilding, remilitarizing the Arctic up to the level it used to be. But that does not explain all of the Russian behavior. They're also engaged in some provocative actions in the Arctic that bear watching, including with China. I don't think the Arctic needs to be more militarized, but other countries, including the United States, are worried about Russian activity there, and, ha and we are taking some steps to shore up our own defenses in the Arctic. Is it within the framework of the American federal government difficult to keep attention focused on the Arctic when there is so much going on elsewhere in the world? I know the United States has interests pretty much everywhere, but there's a couple of fairly obvious items near the top of the agenda right now. Yes, there are a number of hotspots elsewhere in the world. That is true. But here's another thing that's also true. Climate change is very much at the top of the U.S. agenda and the Arctic is a critical piece of the climate change puzzle. So at least for those reasons, the United States government is still quite focused on the Arctic and what is happening there. And do you think in terms of, again, American domestic politics, climate change is being communicated effectively enough? Because it, there's not a consensus on this in American politics. This is still, as you know, the subject of a culture war bun fight. My perception is that the terms of the debate about climate change in the United States have actually shifted. There are fewer and fewer people who deny that climate change is happening at all. And there are fewer and fewer people who are denying that climate change has anthropogenic causes. The focus of the debate in the U.S. more and more is shifting to what to do about it. Yeah, it's not the subject of consensus. I'm not sure it's the subject of consensus many places in the world. But the debate within the United States has evolved. And that was Ambassador David Bolton speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller in Reykjavik. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Estonia is one of the world's most digitally advanced countries and Cybernetica, its oldest IT company, has been a key player in the development of the government's digital services. Well, it's now bringing that knowledge to governments around the world. And Oliver Vartnu is CEO of Cybernetica and he spoke to Monocle's Chris Chermak about what it's like navigating government bureaucracies. How Estonia, to my mind, stands out in the world then I still think that we have a lot to uh, offer to different countries, how we have developed our systems here. 
I don't see a lot of countries which have digitalized pretty much all their processes. And maybe also one thing that I notice is that for more sophisticated, bigger countries, Estonian reference or administrative capacity or the procedures are too small in a way to copy them. So they take Estonia as a, okay, this is a nice reference case. You've got 1.3 million people, but we in UK have 60, 70 million people. That really doesn't work for us. We need much more sophisticated processes and we're not sure whether, you know, these can be digitalized or should be digitalized in a way that you do. But I still think that Estonia is, is very strong, has a lot to offer to the world. And I can see that also from our businesses and also other businesses here in Estonia, they, they tend to grow and more and more countries are finding the way to Estonia. Mm. Mostly, of course, these are developing countries and not very developed countries where administrations are more sophisticated, long histories, etc., etc. In general, I was curious what, as an entrepreneur, it has been like working so closely, so intricately with governments. Mm -hmm. Is that a challenge? Is it more of a challenge in other places, perhaps, than in Estonia? How have you found dealing with the, the bureaucracy of a government when you are trying to change their systems entirely? First of all, I have a government background, so my previous position was actually quite high in the government. I was the head of strategy for the Estonian Prime Minister's office. So I have a government background and, and I have an understanding how government works. But in regards to governments, I mean, you are very right, every government is very different. And usually the you know cultures, customs, organizational setups, they're all, all very different. So when I go to a country, I really take some time to analyze where I am, what is happening. I try to research as much as possible in regards to the government. And it's a slow business. If you do it ideally, a business with a government, the process of a sale could be maybe two years. And there are definitely a lot of drop-off points within these two years where you can lose your contract. But then again, it's quite a, also quite a stable business. Once you're in, build a strong relationship with the government. It works. Some of the countries are more frustrating than others. <laughs> and Estonia is definitely, you know, an easy place to do business with the government. It's very linear. You know, you, you see what you get. The processes are defined. Everything is online. You can see the tender plans of the organizations. You know, when the tender is published, how you submit. It's very, very easy. But yeah, I mean, if we go, for example, to Latin America or somewhere in Asia, you don't have that transparency and traceability of the system. So you have to uh, customize. And that's why actually Cybernetica keeps its core in the product development and also some small sales. But everywhere in the world we operate, especially with bigger projects, we have local partners. So... That is to represent our interest. They know the government, they are boots on the ground. But actually what's also important for us is that when we deploy our technologies to third countries, we need to have kind of a capability or a knowledge transfer process at the back end. So we want to be your product company. But in order for this product to succeed in your ecosystem, you have to make it your own product. Chronicles Chris Chermak there. You're listening to The Globalist. It's time now to hear Andrew Muller's take on what we've learned this past week. Strap yourselves in. We learned this week that Boris Johnson, Alexander Boris de Feffel, actual Johnson of all people, former Mayor of London, Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister, is a shiftless, unreliable, self-absorbed gadabout, entirely unsuited to the occupancy of any position of responsibility. We were, as usual, as shocked as you were. 
We learned this from the inquiry into the UK government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, from which we have so far learned that if the UK government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic was, in many respects, best summarised by a popular phrase or saying rhyming with fluster duck, it was not the fault of the prime actual minister for being a shiftless, unreliable, self-absorbed gadabout entirely unsuited to the occupancy of any position of responsibility, but the fault of the virus for being the wrong kind of national emergency. It was the wrong crisis for this Prime Minister's skill set. We have not learned as yet from the ongoing deliberations what the right crisis for that Prime Minister's skill set would be, but are going to go ahead and surmise that it is the kind of crisis which summons such abilities as dressing quickly in the dark and shimmying down drain pipes, or failing that the ability to maintain a reasonably straight face while declaring it's not what it looks like to an enraged spouse, whether one's own or someone else's. <coughs> We further learned that an exchange of Christmas cards this looming yuletide between the former Prime Minister and his erstwhile ideological homunculus Dominic Cummings is unlikely. We learned this from the bleakly enjoyable section of proceedings at which Cummings had excerpts of his own blog and his own WhatsApp messages read back to him. We knew he was, in any objective sense, unfit to be Prime Minister. We also knew that he knew too since he told us. Is that your blog? It is. In your statement, did you say that he couldn't chair meetings, stick to a plan or build a high-performance team? For sure. You helped to put him there, did you not? For sure. You called ministers useless <laughs> pigs, morons. <laughs> Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view. <laughs> We also learned that crackers will not be pulled by Cummings and former Secretary of State for Health turned serial reality show prop Matt Hancock. That Mr Hancock is unfit for this job, the incompetence, the constant lies, the obsession with the media bullshit for doing his job. Still no serious testing in care homes. <laughs> His uselessness is still killing God knows how many. And we learned that the current Cabinet Secretary, i.e. the UK's senior-most civil servant, Simon Case, is also unlikely to be wearing a silly hat and reading out unamusing jokes at the Johnson family festive dinner. Judging by the contents of his WhatsApp messages, this one read by Monocle's Mixed Metaphors desk chief, Tom Webb. I am at the end of my tether. He cannot lead. The team captain cannot change the call on the big plays every day. Government isn't actually that hard, but this guy is making it impossible. But we learned that Boris Johnson was not the only national leader to have recently found it difficult to properly grasp a challenge, as we will now illustrate with some frankly underwhelming audio. which we learned that Czech President Petr Pavel, whatever other strengths he may possess, is an extremely poor judge of the heft of a flagpole. What we heard there was President Pavel knocking the hat off a soldier by miswielding such an implement during some sort of military ceremony in Prague. We learned, however, that while a less rigidly forthright politician, examples of which were mentioned earlier in this monologue, might have sought to style this mishap out as in some way intentional, like if, and stick with us here, the soldier's hat was COVID-19, the suddenly unprotected soldier was the British public, and the flagpole was a broadly sensible raft of public health measures decisively enacted, and to be honest, it's striking us around about now that maybe we shouldn't have been so sniffy about someone else's metaphors just just a few minutes ago. Yeah. All right, feeling bad enough as it is. But we learned that President Pavel, himself a former general, was not the sort to seek refuge in such shabby equivocations, owning his fumble as follows, as will now be read by Tom Webb, who we shall repurpose as Monocle's Rye Mia Culpa's desk chief, seeing as how he's in the studio anyway. It was certainly not an attempt to add a new element to the standard military procedure. I simply underestimated the weight. Honesty, leavened with humility and humour. You see how it's done. And... 
Cause it's witchcraft Wicked witchcraft we learned that justice may shortly be done for the luckless cohort of women who were sent down or strung up for being witches in Massachusetts, circa the late 1600s. We learned that while most of those witches convicted in the famous trials of Salem have long since been cleared, petitioners will shortly be taking a case to the Massachusetts State House seeking posthumous pardons for a previous generation of pointy-hatted, broom-riding, spell-casting, cat-stroking, mouse-tending, Owning, wart sprouting, cackle emitting, cauldron stirrers. And why, yes, we did write that specifically to annoy the producer who now has to find all those sound effects. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Searle and Isabella Jewell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu with editing assistance from Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London. We'll be talking uh, about Anthony Blinken's visit to Israel, the fact that uh, the Japanese yen has collapsed, leading to a complete overhaul of plans for military expansion. And we'll be hearing about Swiss cowbells and how a group of residents in a village have got rather cross about them. That's all coming up on The Briefing from midday here in London. Hope you can join me for that and The Globalist will be back at the same time on Monday and I'll be behind the microphone for that too. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. 